welcome to the Sermons Podcast of Christ Bible Church in St. Paul, Minnesota. I'm Pastor Levi Secord, and I'd like to thank you for listening. Christ Bible Church exists to bring all of Christ into all of life, and in doing so, we glorify God. This podcast series is not meant to be a replacement for the local church. It is not meant to replace your regular gathering with Christ's people across Christ's earth. And so we encourage you to use these sermons to bring glory to God, to bring all of Christ into all of life, and to strengthen and encourage one another in his name. With all of that in mind, let us turn our hearts and our minds now to the preaching of God's word, and in it may we see and glorify and emulate our Savior. What is the main problem in your life and in my life? Moreover, what is the main problem in the world? How you answer that one specific question will set you on a trajectory of what solution you look for. Is, for example, something that goes around today, is the main problem a lack of tolerance and inclusivity? If you think that's the main problem in the world today, then you will follow the gospel of wokeness, trumpeting trumpeting the need above everything else for acceptance and inclusiveness in the ironic form in which you will become one of the most uninclusive and most judgmental people you will ever meet. How we answer the question, what went wrong, will drive where you go for solutions. Another example we see today is the idea of the victimhood mentality. That if you don't agree with someone, if you don't affirm someone, then you are abusing them. You are not safe. And so we have to cut anybody off who doesn't agree with us. It moves us, or behooves us, to consider how does a society get to a point like that? We get there through the work and the thoughts of people like Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who then inspired people like Marx and Freud and Jung and many other intellectuals of our day, through cultural Marxism, who have taught us that the main problem in this world today is not in here, but it's out there. You're a victim because there's all these expectations upon you. There's all these rules and nobody will let you be your true and happy self. The problem is is that family, society, the church, men or whatever power structures there are, they entrap you and prevent you from following your heart. If you think that is the, the main problem, then you will look for a solution that sets you free from all rules and regulations. The problem is out there. It is reality that is oppressive, and a reality must bend to what is in here. Like, you don't end up with transgenderism overnight. My biological reality is oppressive. It needs to bend to what is in here. Where you define the main problem determines where you look for a solution. If the problem is out there, then the greatest good is within, and the individual self becomes functionally God. This is much of the thinking that has laid waste not only to churches and schools and universities, but also to families and individuals. We've never been more self-focused as a society, and we've never been more miserable as a society. And those two things go hand in hand. Where you identify the problem will determine where you look for the solution. I want you to note that contrary to all of this, Christianity asserts without qualification that the main problem is not social, but it's moral. 
The main problem is not society that is inherently oppressive, but it is the individuals who are inherently sinful who then make up society. So the main problem is in here, not out there. Christianity has asserted this for 2,000 years, and it will continue to do so. And this drives us to look for a solution not within, but without, outside of ourselves. This is a fundamentally different way to look at the world. The problem starts with me, therefore I need a solution outside of myself. So let me state this as clearly as I can. If you've been here a while, you know this, but it's good to be reminded. There can be no halfway house between the spirit of this age and the church of Jesus Christ. I'm going to say it to you one more time. There can be no halfway house between the spirit of this age and the gospel of Jesus Christ and his people. You either have to look out there for the problem or in here. You either have to look in here for the solution or out there. There are two different religions. And I bring this up this morning because every age is full of voices that offer their solutions to wrongly diagnosed problems. Every single age does it. And Jesus' day was no different. Today we're going to cover two different miracles, two different signs that uh, Christ performs. And as I've said before, Christ does his miracles for a reason. He doesn't do them chiefly to show off. He doesn't do them chiefly because they're cool or because they gather a crowd. He does his miracles to show us what his kingdom is like and who he is. That's the point of the miracles. They show us something greater. But a consistent theme throughout the Gospel of John is that Jesus does these mighty deeds and the people then flock to him for the wrong reasons. They think the maladies that they have, that Jesus is healing, is the main problem. But it's not. And so they miss the entire point. And what we're going to see today, as we reach the end of this, that Jesus is going to show us by his miracles who he is. And that is the solution. It begins really in verses 43 through 45. Jesus leaves Samaria, and as he leaves Samaria, he heads back to Galilee. And and this is motivated by his growing popularity and the opposition that has now come to him because he's getting more uh, popular. He knows that a, quote, a prophet has no honor in his hometown. Now, what is, why does John throw that in here? Well, Jesus is literally leaving a foreign country. He's leaving Samaria, in which he performed no great miracle. All he did was tell this woman at the well that he knew that she had had many husbands without her telling. And this led to the conversion of an entire town, but he had done no miracle. Now he's coming back to his hometown, his home country, and his reception that he's going to receive is a whole lot more mixed. Some people are going to follow him. Some are going to reject him. And the conflicts around his miracles today are going to really crank up the opposition to him. It's not just the Jewish leaders, but by the end of chapter 6, everyone but the 12 disciples will leave Jesus because of what he is teaching. He's in his home country, and he will be rejected. When he was in a foreign country, he was accepted by a whole town. The contrast is intentional. 
And this sets the stage for Christ's return to Cana in Galilee. His first sign was performed here, water into wine. And that fulfilled the prophecies concerning the Messianic age. It would be a time of abundant wine. It would be a time pictured like a wedding. And now Jesus will perform a second sign, which is fulfilling other prophecies about the coming Messianic age. Consider Isaiah 35, 5-6. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. The healings that Jesus performs here are meant to show that he is the promised Messiah. And this is what his kingdom is like. And so a man who is a royal official, he comes to Jesus because his son is sick and about to die. This man is likely someone who worked for King Herod. He was probably not Gentile, but he was probably a Jew. And we should note that contrary to similar healings in the other Gospels, he is not there for his servant, but for his son. This is a unique healing. Apparently, the father had heard of Jesus' ability to heal, and as any loving or desperate father with the life of his child on the line, he seeks any remedy he can find. My son is dying. I've heard this man can heal the sick. So he approaches Jesus and he asks asks him to heal his son. This is where Jesus' response is kind of strange, but telling. Look at verse 48. Jesus responds to the request. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The you in the Greek there is plural. He's not just speaking to the Father. He's speaking to the crowds who are following him. He's saying, unless you see these mighty deeds that I'm performing, you're not going to believe. And there's a little bit of irony in this because Jesus is basically saying your faith isn't a real faith. The father believes Jesus can heal the son, but he missed the bigger and more important truth, who Jesus is. The crowds, as as throughout John, are enamored by the power that Jesus has to do things but they are far less pleased with Jesus himself. They love the results. They don't necessarily love the person. Jesus' point to him and to the crowd is that their faith in seeing the signs is not a real faith. It's one thing to see mighty deeds and to be attracted to those. It's another thing to actually believe in Jesus in a saving way. So the man pleads with Jesus to come with him, to come to his house, But Jesus refuses. Instead, Jesus speaks a word of command from a distance, and he instantly heals the son. This is the sign, the second sign in Cana. This is his power. He is the word we read in John 1. The world was created by a spoken word, and the word here speaks a word, and it brings life back to a child. The man heads homes. His servants meet him along the way. They tell him the son has been healed at the very hour where Jesus said so. And so Jesus here is pictured for us as the source of life, just as we were told in the opening of the book. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and in him was life. 
He has the power over life. Look at um, verses 53 and 54. The father knew that the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he came from Judea to Galilee. The man, upon seeing his son healed by a mere word, he believes. And not just him, but his entire household believes. They're all saved. And so Jesus comes from Samaria, where everyone believes. He comes to Galilee. He performs a miracle here. And one man in his household believes. We're going to get a far different story here with the second miracle. The scene now shifts to an unnamed feast in Jerusalem. And on the Sabbath day, Jesus is going to heal someone. And he's going to heal on the Sabbath day to pick a fight, more or less, with the Jewish leaders. This is not an accident. Jesus travels to a pool that many believed at that time had healing power. And so I want you to picture this setting, if you would. There is, by this gate, a pool in the middle of the town that just has bodies, sick and decaying bodies, everywhere around the pool. Those who are maimed, crippled, and dying just lay there, hoping beyond hope that somehow they might be healed when the water is stirred up. In the ancient world, hygiene wasn't a very high priority to begin with. This setting would have been vomit-inducing, especially for the man who was laying there for 38 years. I'm not even 38 years old yet. Longer than my life, he laid there, waiting, surrounded probably by disease, human waste, and body upon body, waiting for water to heal them. You should note that throughout this gospel, this idea comes up again and again of living or moving water. You can imagine the sheer desperation of the people who sat there waiting for something to happen. And in the flow of the story, you should see this, or the story, you should see this trend. There's this ineffective purification water at the, at the wedding in Cana. Jesus turns it into wine, the best wine. In John 2, later on, there's the ineffective temple worship in Jerusalem. And Jesus says, I'm the temple. Then there's the ineffective birth of Nicodemus. And Jesus says, you need to be born again in John 3. Then there's the ineffective well in Samaria where the woman comes thirsty and then leaves without her water pot when she meets the one who is the living water. The miracles and teachings and signs that Jesus does all point to this greater reality, that he's actually the solution to your problem. And so we have what appears to be a blending of the Jewish faith and superstition here at the pool of Bethesda. People waiting that maybe an angel would stir the water and only the first one who gets in would be healed. But it is a false hope. There's no mercy. There's no healing. There's no power there. And as much as us moderns like to put our nose up at the ancients and go, man, how silly and foolish would you have to be to lay around a pool thinking it would heal you? We do the same thing. We do it with drugs. Try to escape our problems. We do it with over-medication. 
We do it with pop psychology. We do it with politicians. They're going to fix all your problems. They create all your problems. You do it with gurus. I've got the secret to a good life for you. And so we crowd around and move from movement to movement, splayed around these pools that can't actually fix anything. We go to the high priests of our day, like these people huddled around the pool, and we beg to be healed. And I put forward to you that as a society, we've been laying around that pool for far longer than 38 years. And the carnage is everywhere to be seen. Does anybody think that things are going well for us right now? You can divide us up on the political aisle. One thing we all agree on, nothing's going well right now. It is into this that Jesus picks one man from a crowd laying around that pool to heal. Why only one? Elsewhere, Jesus heals everybody within his vicinity. But here he picks one. I'm not sure why he only picks one here. Some of it surely has to do with him healing on the Sabbath and doing so for a theological reason to provoke the leaders in Jerusalem. But why does he pick this man? Why not the man next to him? Unlike many others who who are healed, this man will show no faith in Jesus whatsoever. He will even show a little bit of contempt for Christ after the healing. And so I think part of what Jesus is doing here is showing us that miracles and signs in and of themselves are not enough. They're not enough. So Jesus asks the man, do you want to be healed? What kind of a question is that? Do you want to be healed? The man has been sitting by the pool in hopes of being healed for 38 years. But much like his conversation with the woman at the well, Jesus doesn't ask the question because he doesn't know the answer. He asks the question to probe so that we might consider it. Does this man really understand why he's there, what led him there, and what it's actually going to take for him to be healed? This is why Jesus asks the question. The man replies, Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. While I am going, another steps down before me. Two things are going on here. His answer is like, obviously, I want to be healed. That's why I'm here. But he misses the point. Just as the woman at the well thought that when Jesus talked about living water, that he was talking about physical water, this man thinks the healing is primarily about the pool in Jerusalem. Like, maybe Jesus can pick me up and put me in so I can be first. But he is actually talking to the one who can heal him both physically and spiritually. But this man seems rather to trust in a pool that's disappointed him for 38 years. Elsewhere in the Gospels, Jesus likens us in our sin that we are like dogs who constantly return to our vomit. We keep going back to the same sources over and over again. They don't do anything. And then we are surprised when we vomit it back out. Jesus' response to the man is perfect. All he says to the man is, get up, take your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, he took up his bed, and he walked. The man waited 38 years by a powerless pool to be healed. 
Jesus shows up, speaks a word of command, and the man is so healed that he can stand up and carry a burden with him across town. But as the saying goes, no good deed goes unpunished. Jesus' command to carry the bed on the Sabbath was intentional. He knew it would provoke something, and he gets what he wants in verses 9 through 11. At once the man was healed, he took up his bed, and he walked. Now that was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. Jesus was picking a fight. Elsewhere he heals on the Sabbath, and they warn him beforehand. He tells the man with the bad hands, Just stick it out. He's like, Watch me. Watch what I'm about to do. Jesus thought that this was a hill worth fighting over. The man is confronted. He says, it's not my fault. The guy who told me, the guy who healed me, he said, pick up this bed and walk. He didn't even know the name of Jesus. He didn't ask. Wasn't concerned. He didn't seem interested in Jesus, but only in the power to heal. But we have to ask ourselves a question here. Was Jesus actually commanding God's law to be broken on the Sabbath? God had commanded the people of Israel to keep the Sabbath holy, to set it aside to the Lord, and to not work on those days. To this rule, the Jews had added many more rules and regulations to ensure that they wouldn't violate the Sabbath command. They practiced a form of legalism. They said, God has given us this rule, but we can out-holy God by adding more and more and more rules. Therefore, we won't sin. And part of this is really, really understanding. If you're reading your Old Testament and you get to the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, what you see is the people, when they come back from exile, they realize that why they were kicked out is that they had broken God's law. They were not faithful. And so you see the roots of the Pharisee movement in Ezra and Nehemiah. They start adding these rules so that they might protect themselves, that they would never get kicked out of the land again. To add guardrails around God's law so that they would not be punished for breaking it. And so they added to the law. Did Jesus command the breaking of the Sabbath law? No. Contrary to what some teachers have said, Jesus was not against the law of God. Jesus is God. What Jesus did was command a man to break the tradition of the Jewish elders. There's a huge difference between the two. The Jews had come up with 39, that's right, 39 categories of work that were not allowed on the Sabbath. So God says don't work on the Sabbath. The Jews are like, well, what does that mean? Well, here are 39 different categories that you can't do on the Sabbath. The last, the 39th, was this, carrying a load from one dwelling place to another. That's what this man was doing. He was breaking the tradition of the elders but he was not sinning. This Sabbath controversy occurs throughout the Gospels between Christ and the Jewish leaders. It's here in John. But in Mark 2, Jesus gives us a good guiding principle for the heart of the Sabbath law. What is the Sabbath law for? Mark two twenty-seven and 28. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a day set aside for rest 
in worship to the Lord so that man would not labor in his vocation nonstop 24-7. Rest is essential to the human condition. So is direct worship of God. Thus, the Sabbath was created to benefit man. And if you turn that which was meant to benefit man into a burden for man, you have perverted the law. Let me rephrase this. In a strange way, the Pharisees had taken the rest of the Sabbath and they had made it unrestful. And by forbidding all 39 categories of work, they actually made the Sabbath more work than it was designed to be. The Sabbath exists for the good of humanity. Humanity does not exist for the Sabbath. I want to dive into this just a little bit as Christians. There are various schools of thought in Christianity about how does the Sabbath apply to you and me today. I'll tell you point blank. I am convinced through the New Testament's teachings that Christ is the fulfillment of Sabbath rest and that will be brought even fuller in the new creation. Therefore, I do not believe the command to rest on the Sabbath day is covenantally binding on Christians today. There are good Christians who disagree with me on this. But I believe Paul makes this point abundantly clear in Colossians 2, 16 through 17. He says this, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival, a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are shadows of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Paul says, No one should judge you according to the food laws or the Sabbath. These things were shadows. Christ is the substance of the shadows. The substance has come. Paul makes a similar point in Romans 14, 5 through 6. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day, which is certainly the Sabbath, observes it to honor the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord since he gives thanks to God. Put it plainly, you are no longer bound to keep the Sabbath law. Christ is your Sabbath. But having said that, there are Christians who disagree with me on this. We would call them Sabbatarians, that is, they believe in keeping the Sabbath in full force today. There are many good brothers who believe this and who practice it well, but there are also some who fall into the same trap of the Pharisees, heaping rule upon rule for keeping the Sabbath. For example, Emily was reading a book to our kids the other day, and the story was telling of what Sundays were like in America a couple hundred years ago. No one was allowed to do anything. Nothing at all. The kids snuck out and went sledding down a hill, and their dad caught them. And he waited till Monday to discipline them. Right? Still, I know some Sabbatarians today, some 1689 uh, Baptists, um, who forbid, for example, the playing of sports on Sunday. But they allow people to watch and listen to sports being played on Sunday. These things don't make any sense to me. So I'll give you the basic test again. If you're convicted by Scripture that you're bound to keep the Sabbath in some way in Christ, um, avoid losing the heart of the Sabbath. If your rules for the Sabbath are so contradictory and burdensome that you make Sunday the worst day of the week, you have missed the point of the Sabbath. You are acting like man exists for the Sabbath instead of the Sabbath for man. 
When Emily read that story, it just struck me that such legalism and joy-sucking rules may have contributed to the decline of Christianity in the West. When you make the Lord's Day unbearable, you make the Lord very unappealing. Now, of course, there are principles of the Sabbath that you should worship God. You should not work nonstop. Those things are in full effect. But don't miss the heart of the Sabbath. After being initially questioned, the man returns to Jesus. He finds out what his name is. And Jesus gives him a very interesting warning here. He says, see, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Apparently, this man's original injury was somehow connected to a specific sin he had committed. He says, look, you're well. Make sure that nothing worse happens to you if you sin again. This, of course, is not always true, but it can be true. People who live by the sword die by the sword, often. Those who do drugs often ruin their minds. Sins can have real physical impacts. Those who smoke three packs of cigarettes a day are more likely to end up with lung cancer. We know this. Certain sins of some time have real-world consequences. And that appears to be true for this man. But the man's response is very, very telling. The man went away. He told the Jews that it was Jesus who healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Because he had had been doing these things on the Sabbath. This man knew that the Jews were angry at the command. He didn't know Jesus' name. He got Jesus' name and he went and tattletailed on Jesus to the leaders. The first guy, his son was healed, he believed. The second guy, he was healed, he didn't believe. He turned on him. This leads us to the pinnacle of this section. The point of these great wonders. Verses 17 through 18. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus' defense is simple. My father is working up until now. I am my father's son, so I can keep working. The Jews rightly know that what Jesus is claiming here is equality with God. At the heart of the Christian faith is this declaration. Jesus is God. He is God. What is the point of these miracles? To show you, through an action, who Jesus is. Jesus is God. He is the Word who was with God and who is God. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. He is the Creator and the Sustainer of all things. Jesus is going to expand on this later on in chapter 5, but the point is there for all of us to see. Whether or not you believe Jesus is God is one question. It's a very important question. But there can be no doubt whatsoever that the Bible asserts this claim again and again. Contrary uh, to Mormonism or Jehovah's Witnessism or any other cult, we are not misunderstanding the Bible. It is crystal clear again and again, jumps off the page, 
that unlike any other religious movement, Christianity claims that God came in the flesh and he dwelt among us. He works like his Father does. He has the power of life within himself. This is our God who can, by a single word of command, heal anything. This is the claim he made to the Jews. And he backed it up with miracles, and they rejected him. Put it another way, it wasn't a lack of evidence why they didn't believe. I want to make three very quick applications from these healings for you this morning. The first is this. Stop. Stop going to ineffective human superstitions for healing. Meaning, completeness, joy, or direction in life. Our modern-day pools of Bethesda are every bit as ineffectual of dealing with your main problem as that pool was. So stop it. Don't go there. You'll be laying around for longer than 38 years. Second, listen to this one very, very carefully. Don't go to Jesus only for what he can do for you. Don't go to Jesus only for his mighty works or his power. Go to Jesus because of who he is. Don't love the results of Christ more than you love Christ himself. The signs are there to show us who he is. They do come together. But love the person more than the results. And third and finally, we are called here to see Jesus Christ for who he truly is. He is God in the flesh. We are to behold Jesus, and in beholding him, we are to behold our God, see his power, and then worship and love him. That's the point of the miracles. See Jesus. See his kingdom. See his character. And then believe in him. Let's pray. Lord God, we pause this morning to offer you thanks that in your word we can see your glory and your goodness. That we can see your hand in saving your people. Lord, I ask that you might give us eyes to see Jesus more clearly. And that in that, we would see not only his mighty deeds, but his goodness, his mercy, his love, and his faithfulness. And that we would cling to him no matter what. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Christ Bible Church. Remember, this world is dripping with meaning because Christ created it, he sustains it, and he is reconciling it all to himself. Now go and live out that glorious truth.